A reading from the second chapter of Micah. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and mourn bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, but barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called to one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. 
This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made you a judge or arbitrator over you? Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Sundays and being with your church and worship and receiving from your word um, and receiving from you yet to come. And I ask that you be with us now and open up our hearts and minds to receive those uh, words and teachings and challenges that you have for us. In your name, amen. <clears throat> so when I was younger, not like my 20s, but like eight. Um, somewhere around eight anyway, I remember I was at a cousin's house. Um, I don't know, my mom was visiting with my aunt. It was a little funny because for some reason most of my cousins weren't there that day. That just meant that I was off playing in one of their rooms with some of their toys. Uh, I was at that time and for quite a few years, I kind of still am a fan of like small little, you know, like fighters or monsters or guys that, you know, very fun boyish little things. Uh, and they had two of these toys that I really enjoyed. And honestly, I can actually still remember a surprising amount of details about one of, what one of them looked like, but I won't bore you with the description of his really cool armor or his purple bug alien face or any of those things. Um, but I was really enjoying these toys. And I found myself really wanting these toys. And I thought of how perfectly they would work with the types of toys that I had like that back at home. And I noticed, you know, that these toys were kind of off to the side, just in a back corner where they, you know, seemed like they'd been largely forgotten at this point. And it was easy to see that my cousins had quite a few other toys. These really wouldn't be missed that much. And why really should they stay here and just be ignored when they could be with me, where I would play with them and want them? Um, so on my way out, I slipped them into my pocket. And that was in the morning. It was that afternoon that I was playing with them at my house. And my sister noticed them and asked where I'd gotten these toys, what was up with them. And I was shocked because my sister never paid attention to my toys. She really she didn't normally know anything about them. And I couldn't figure out how did she notice these were new or unusual. 
Um, so, of course, I had to lie at that point, but I was not expecting anyone to notice, so I didn't have a great thing all prepped in my head. So I just told her, uh, I think I told her first, well, I've always had them, and then I was like, that's not very good. So I went with, well, I found them at the bottom of my Christmas stocking. You know, Santa brought them, and I had just missed them at Christmas. It was summer when we said this, so that was not the most convincing tale, um, and she, of course, told my mom about this and I was found out. Honestly, though, I remember ultimately, even that day, frankly, being found out, being known, figuring this out, it was a good thing. Uh, Talked with my mom, went back to my cousin's home where I did confess and apologize. It wasn't necessarily a big, beautiful thing. It was just, I took these, sorry. Um, And I returned those toys. But I remember everything from there. It was, it was helpful. It was good that my parents, my aunt, were, they were very patient and kind. They asked some good questions. They, of course, discussed that this was wrong. Um, but they were very forgiving. And I knew that I was forgiven in that. So today we are finishing up our series on the Ten Commandments. And though my story that I shared has several instances of how I, uh, at that moment, wasn't following God's commands, obviously stealing being the big centerpiece in that moment, Uh, but it came to mind for me because of today's final topic, um, which is this command, um, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And my story, my starting problem was coveting. And I'm not telling you this childhood tale because I think it was so especially dramatic or bad. Um, In a lot of ways, actually, I think it's fairly normal or maybe mundane. Um, Maybe that was one of the reasons my parents and my aunt were so um, reasonable about things. I hope not. I hope it was more than that. But I think we've all felt something like this at some point in our lives. I think we've probably all acted on this in some way. About a month ago, Pastor Andine was preaching on the commandment, you shall not murder. And near the beginning of her sermon, she mentioned how we often think of that command as sort of a gimme. I felt that. It's like, yeah, I haven't killed anyone. Probably not going to. I'm okay. Uh, Andine, of course, showed how much more deeply relevant and important that command was, a command of valuing life, and there's so much there. Uh, I think today's commandment is really the opposite of how we might feel about that command to not murder. I think today's command is the commandment that we can all say quite easily, yeah, I've, I've done that. And then perhaps even inside we might think, well, not such a big deal, is it? We all do it, maybe don't worry about it too much. But of course, this is one of the core teachings God has for his people. If it was unimportant, he could have easily included another idea, a different command here, but he didn't. And these 10 commandments, the 10 words really, that he's given us as his people end with this command that you shall not covet. So we need to explore this together. As I worked through this, I was thinking about this topic. I kind of broke it down into three big categories and questions, and that's what I want to, how do I want to go through it with you. So first, we just need to make sure we understand what is coveting. I don't actually find that as easy as I wish it was. Um, second, why is coveting wrong? Why does God take the time to tell us to not do this? And then finally, then what's the answer for those of us who have struggled or do still struggle with coveting in some way in our lives? So first, what is coveting? And this is one of those great ones. If we're honest, I would bet you've not used the word coveting in regular conversation in years. I've only used it recently 
because I'm teaching this passage. Like, I don't use that word either. Um, we just kind of try to get by with sort of having an idea of what it means in our head, which is actually often a pretty dangerous place to be. We can kind of get a big amorphous idea and not nail it down, and that's not helpful. Um, but actually, as we look through it for it in Scripture, the word coveting is, is rarely used, at least in English translations. Sometimes we find it um, translated a little more specifically in the situations. You might find it as greed, which isn't always enough to cover what coveting is. Sometimes we see it as desire, which is then often bad depending on the context. The big example there, and this is really amazing to me, um, is the story of Adam and Eve. When they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were forbidden to eat from, they saw that fruit as desirable. That's the same Hebrew verb that we translate as coveting. So Adam and Eve were coveting that fruit there. And I think that gives us a good starting place to be defining coveting in some way. Uh, the best definition I found it sticks with desire, but we have to say what kind of desire. Um, specifically, it's disordered desire. That comes actually from our Anglican ACNA catechism. Coveting is disordered desire for what belongs to another. We see that throughout this commandment, how it focuses on what our neighbor has. It's also disordered desire for what we cannot rightly have, for those things that I'm not able to have by law, by gift, or by right. That's how the catechism plays it all out. So coveting is desiring those things that are someone else's or things that are unlawful or even unrighteous. Now, I think the mistake we often make when we start to think about coveting is we think of it as only desire or even strong desire. But the point of this commandment isn't that God has a problem with our desires, blanket statement. The point is that sometimes our desires are wrong. They are disordered and broken. Saying that coveting is disordered desire means that we desire the wrong things or that we desire things in the wrong order or the wrong place. We put our desire for whatever this thing is far above its actual importance. We put our desire for this thing over and above of other people. This is about our neighbors and valuing what they have over them. Um, or we're valuing things over our own relationships. For instance, if I was to covet after my neighbor's wife, I am devaluing my own wife. And of course, this includes valuing anything over God. I think it's helpful at this moment then to consider for just a moment what coveting isn't. It is not coveting to plan and dream for the future. You can desire a different job, a better job. You can have a dream job in mind. You can desire a home and a family. You want a new car, uh, even a car with these types of features and in this color. None of this is an inherently wrong thing to desire. It can often be very good. We should want a better future for ourselves. We should plan and work for that job, for those friendships and relationships that we need. Um, we can think about what we need and want in a new home. God is loving Father, and every good gift comes from Him. Good things are not wrong to want or desire. But coveting isn't simply desire. It's that desire taken too far, desire twisted and bent. It's when we desire these things wrongly, in a wrong way, in the wrong order. Wanting a better job is fine. Desiring my neighbor's job specifically, or putting my desire for this new job over all other relationships, even above God, that is disordered desire. This is what coveting is. This is when our desires turn from being good to being sinful. Now, I hope you notice as we're moving along that as we say that coveting is wrong, that we shouldn't do it, that it's sinful, this is a very countercultural thing. 
I don't think it's hyperbole to say that outside of the church in our Western culture, coveting is seen more as a virtue. Um, it's really foundational to so much of the world around us. Just think of our modern consumerist culture. Um, we find in it this constant call to find our joy and our purpose in that next new and better thing. We see this in the countless ads that promise us we'll be happier with this newer car or these nicer clothes. Or actually really often shown things like, well, my neighbor has a good lawnmower, I need to have the better one now. Or my neighbor has the iPhone 13, so I need the 13 Pro. I don't even know if we're still on iPhone 13 at this point. Um, or my neighbor is more fit and attractive than I am. I can buy that too. Our world says you will be happier if you have what you covet or if you are what others will covet. We say, not so. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is wrong. And that brings us into the second question. So why do we say this is wrong? Now, obviously and simply, God says, don't do it. So doing it is wrong. But if I stop there, this sermon will be far too short. Um, so let's keep exploring this a little bit more. But this, I mean, God has his reasons and what he says is true, but it's fairly explanatory for us to think in our own lives. We can figure this out. What is wrong about coveting? Let me start with a story that may be familiar to some of you. It's a story about King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, and their neighbor Naboth. Now, Ahab was king over Israel. And if you don't know anything about Ahab, all you really need at this point to know is that he was morally an awful person. He might have done some good things as king. I can't say, speak to that for sure, but he was just a bad, I'm going to say bad dude. Um, now, Ahab's palace in Samaria, it was right next to Naboth's land, and Naboth there had a vineyard. But Ahab looked out at that vineyard, and he said, it's so conveniently located, it would be a wonderful place for a vegetable garden. I want that land to be a vegetable garden. But Naboth wouldn't give it up. It was his family's God-given inheritance. He wouldn't be parted from it. Ahab, though, really, really wanted that vegetable garden. And so, like any good king, sorry, wait, like the bad king that he is, um, Ahab's response was actually to lock himself in his room and whine and pout on his bed and not eat food. Um, Ahab was coveting this land, and he couldn't get what he wanted. His response was very poor. But then his wife, Jezebel, stepped in. She seems to have a better understanding of the power that they had as king and queen, um, so much so that she solved Ahab's problem with Ahab's full knowledge um, by having Naboth killed. So then Ahab could very easily go and take hold of this land he wanted and finally plant that vegetable garden. This story, like I think many others in Scripture, it actually shows some of the great dangers of coveting. These strong and broken desires inside of us often do not stay only desires. And so do they, they do not stay only inside of us. We act them out. And when we act out our broken desires, we do broken things. Covetousness is a sin that springs forth into so many other sins. We see it in Ahab's life. It leads not only to murder, but massive abuse of power, complete neglect of his office, and actually drawing so many others into sins around him, and we can find more there. We see this too in our micro reading today. These wicked and powerful people are coveting fields and homes, and so they take them from those who can't stand against them. Even in the story I shared at the beginning, I started out with coveting those toys, but that led me on to stealing and lying. Our internal desires are key to our outward actions. As small as coveting may seem, it often leads to so much more wrong. 
But along with that comes the neighborly focus of this command. Last week, Pastor Joel focused on the importance of loving our neighbor. This is what God has called us to do. And even Jesus, um, in telling this parable of the Good Samaritan, he really radically opens up the definition of our neighbor that we have to love. Everyone that we encounter is our neighbor and cannot be left out or left aside in some way. And coveting cannot be loving our neighbor. Even if we never act on these um, disordered desires, as we covet what our neighbor has, we leave no room for wanting what is best for our neighbor or being glad along with them in their success or rejoicing in God's blessing in their lives. When we covet what our neighbor has, really we're saying they don't deserve this. They shouldn't have this thing. They shouldn't be so happy. Instead, I should be. Speaking honestly, if I'm coveting um, something of my neighbor's, it comes with that self-justification in some way. Um, They're messed up. They only got lucky. They don't deserve it. They don't work that hard. They don't care as much as I do. When we covet, we degrade our neighbor. And especially when we covet and we let coveting grow, it becomes the root of bitterness and lust and wrath and so many other internal sins that are against our neighbor. Coveting has no place for loving our neighbor because really our neighbor is just in the way of whatever we so strongly and wrongly desire. All of this is really just powerfully underscored when Paul, St. Paul just kind of simply summarizes it by saying that covetousness is idolatry. This is what he says in our Colossians reading. Actually, we encountered it in Ephesians 5 a few weeks back as well. To covet is to desire something over and above even our desire of God. I think it's really striking that the Ten Commandments start with the commands to worship only God, to have no other idols, and then the commandments end with this command to avoid coveting, which Paul says, again, is a command to avoid idolatry. We worship and serve um, what we love and desire. We're made to worship and serve and love our great God. Covetousness, this disordered desire, though, is loving and serving something else. It's putting something else in a place where only God should be. So coveting, then, is serious. This isn't a minor thing that we can ignore. It is certainly something we don't want continuing to grow and fester inside of ourselves. So what do we do? And that's our third question. What is the solution if we have struggled with or find ourselves even today still sometimes struggling with coveting? Well, the answer is Jesus. I don't simply mean that because that's the Sunday school answer. I mean that um, completely and seriously for our coveting really for any of the ways that we struggle to live up with what God has called us to, for those sins we commit, the ways we reject God's commands, we have Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us. He never failed to follow God's commands. And even more, he died in our place so that we can take his righteousness for our own. These laws aren't here so that we'll feel condemned. They're here to point us to the great answer that we have, the hope, the salvation we find in Jesus. And what I want us to really take to heart then is that the solution for those of us who do struggle with coveting or any sin that might be on your mind right now, the solution is that great gift of repentance that we are offered. Because of all that Jesus has done, we are able to not just acknowledge, recognize our sinfulness and our need, but we can turn all of it over to him. And then we find such amazing forgiveness that we can never know anywhere else 
When my aunt and my parents forgave me for those things I did wrong, I knew more then about what their love for me was. And it was very freeing. You know, I didn't have to live ashamed of that simple sin and mistakes I had made. I could be released from it and live differently. How much more is the gift of repentance and forgiveness that Jesus offers us that sign and reminder of his love in action? How much more is it that sure path for freedom from our own sins and shames, the start of a new life in him, a life that is freed from the domination of sin and the brokenness of our own desires? I think our Colossians reading is a really amazing reminder of this life that we find in repentance forgiveness. Uh, Paul shows us this first as he reminds us that now in Christ, we have a totally new situation. We have died and even been raised with Christ. And of course, that means that we put to death these earthly, sinful things inside of us. And he has a list that includes sexual immorality, evil desires, wrath, malice, slander, and covetousness. But then especially starting in verse 12, Paul tells us so powerfully of that new life that we put on in God. He says that for everyone who's really repented and been forgiven, as God's chosen, beloved, holy ones, our lives can look completely differently than, we have, than they have in the past. Consider again the sin of coveting, the selfish, broken desire that does not love God or our neighbors. Instead of this, in Christ, we're people of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. As we have been forgiven, so we also forgive. And we can love each other above all else. We can truly love our neighbor and love our God. That language Paul uses here is, is the language that we put all this on, like we're putting on new clothes. But what he's really saying is we're putting on our new life. I know that can feel really big for us. I can't put this all on by myself. Even after knowing the saving grace of God, it's, I'm still too far too easily content with the easy way, the earthly way. But Paul's point is not simply that we do all of this. Everything that Paul describes here is really the life of Christ. But he says in that same breath that we are already joined to Christ. He is already our life. So the work of God, this is God's work in us. This is what he's doing. But it is at the same time still something we pursue. It is something that we remember and turn towards ourselves. The mystery in God's great work is that God is doing everything here, but we're still called to do our own something. So God is at work in us to make this life real in us, and then we respond by working it out in him. And that is big and beautiful, but even today, this morning, I find that a little too big to just leave it there. I love this, and then I think, all right, but just for this morning, if I don't want my life to have space for covetousness, where do I start? Certainly, like I said, repent, receive Christ's forgiveness, and then I think a great place to go is just as Paul says, be thankful. Our disordered desires often flow from a lack of thankfulness. I do not appreciate what I have, what I've been given, and I want more. I want something else. So let's counter that by instead intentionally practicing thanksgiving. Even when we're not coveting directly, we can still feel our wants piling up far too high next to our needs. So make it a practice to daily take time in thanksgiving. Now, I mean, starting off, take time to thank God and make that a set amount of time. Don't just say thanks, but take five minutes or more to actually say everything that you can possibly think of and be thankful about. But don't just stop with God. Then be thankful for others. Thank your spouse as often as you can. Thank your children, your parents, your friends, coworkers. Thank the 
the worker at the checkout lane, be known not for what you want, but for how thankful you are for what you have. Of course, none of this means that you'll necessarily feel amazingly thankful right away, but that practice of thanking others does grow that sense and understanding of thanksgiving for what we have. Uh, this week, I was actually really reminded of, of thankfulness in a, in a really great way and what I would like in my life. Um, so my family and I were gone for a trip over my kid's spring break, uh, and my, um, my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Ellie, well, she likes to pray before meals. Um, she's not always fully sure what she's doing at that time, but she really likes to do it. And it was about midway through our trip, we were down, sitting down for dinner, and Ellie started praying. Sometimes when she prays, she needs just a little bit of prompting. She's not going to stop praying until she feels like she's said enough. And that means if we want to eat, we have to get her a couple things or she's just going to stay. Um, but this time, Ellie just started praying and she just kept going and going. We worried we'd have to stop her almost so we could eat at some point. And what she prayed for was all thank yous. She said, um, it's just everything she could possibly remember so far in the week. She told the Lord, thank you for a grandpa. Thank you for some fun with these butterflies. Thank you for swimming. Thank you for the safe drive so far. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the special toy. Thank you for our friend who's at our house back home watching our dog. She went on and on. And I was surprised at three and a half that she remembered all these things that I'd kind of forgotten at this point. But I also felt so much longing in that for that type of thankfulness in my own life. Covenant is serious, like we've said, but the grace of God, of our God, is more serious still. It's almost Holy Week. I think these next days and these weeks, it's a perfect time for us to consider again that gift of repentance and forgiveness that is offered to us because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And it's a perfect time to say thank you. So may we grow in that thankfulness. May we find then our desires shaped and turned towards our great God who loves us so much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God um, who cares not just about our outward things, but our inward and who we are inside. And we ask for your help. I ask that you draw us towards you, always lead us into repentance and forgiveness, but then especially then, even as we're moving forward now, make us a people of thankfulness. Show us, help us to see all those things we actually have, all those great gifts you've given. Um, and then we can turn around to thank you and thank those around us. Amen. Okay.